Take your scriptures and turn to Psalm 16. Audience. Have you thought about who's the audience in a church? Why, when those men and women got out of their seat to come up here on the platform and sing that great song, there were as many people up here as there were out there. And if you're not careful, you'll think incorrectly. Who's the audience? At a time of corporate public worship, who's the audience? God is the audience. I do believe he's been pleased this morning with our efforts in singing and special music, good things for us to enjoy. We've dedicated this month of April at worship to the very few direct Old Testament statements of bodily resurrection. We've noted that each clear reference to bodily resurrection in the Hebrew scriptures is likewise connected to the thread line of messianic prophecy. Heretofore, we have considered the resurrection statement of Hannah in the light of the first direct use of the term Mashiach, or Messiah, for Samuel chapter 2. We have also considered the resurrection statement of Job in the light of his Goel, his ever-living kinsman, Redeemer, Job 19. And now this morning we take to heart the resurrection statement of Israel's most beloved king, King David. And the statement is found in Psalm 16. We'll plug in it, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Father, what a beautiful expression of confidence, even upon first reading, that we have here before us from King David, your servant, Israel's most beloved king, and one who has ministered to us time and again through his many psalms and expressions of poems that yield a heart that is tender towards God. Help us then as we attend to this text, because it is indeed special in ways that are even above and beyond that which we normally think. And help us especially in light of the calendar to honor the uniqueness of emphasis that is today in some ways worldwide But again, we pray that you would allow us to be uniquely engaged for the truth and not for the sake of trinkets. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. All scripture is given by God, breathed out by God for profitable 
uh, uh, things in a believer's life for profitable things to you and me regarding doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, says Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Yet some of the scriptures are set forth with identifying marks and titles that give to us insight to their special value and importance for the family of God. Such is the case in Psalm 16. Please note that the psalm has a superscription. If you look in your Bible where it says Psalm 16, it likely says above the first verse, mitcom, mitum of David. Only six of the 150 psalms have this title, and this one is placed in the Psalter apart from the other five. You will find the same entitlement, mictum, over Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. But this particular mictum, Psalm of David, is separated from the others, standing apart, and has long been recognized as to its grouping among the Psalter, the grouping in the Psalms, as placed because of its messianic undercurrent, starting back with Psalm 15 and running through Psalm 24. Now, most people here would have the idea that Psalm 22 Psalm 23, Psalm 24, uniquely speak of Mashiach, uniquely speak of Messiah. But if you look at it from the structure of the Psalms, that messianic section of Psalms really begins with the 15th Psalm and continues through the 24th Psalm. This is not only in the section of messianic Psalms running 15 to 24, but this is the only Psalm in the section, the messianic section, that is likewise designated Mictum. All six Mictum psalms open with a prayer in a time of trouble and proceed with expressions of praise and holy confidence. All six are jewels of worship and praise. Uh, the word Mictum has to do with something that is hidden or covered. C.H. Spurgeon characterizes the six as psalms of the precious secret, the precious secret. Psalms of the precious secret. The secret in all six psalms, as designated, has to do with the psalmist's hope in the Lord. You see that here in verse 5. David said, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. That expression of God himself being the reward of his people is one of the uniquenesses of these collection of psalms designated by the word miktum. It is the precious covering of God for his servants, for his people, that is brought to bear in these six expressions of praise 
and thanksgiving in these six expressions of holy confidence. Hannah, Job, and now David expresses his hope in the Lord himself, particularly in regard to the topic of resurrection. Saints over generations have said and sung the same in perpetuity. But like Hannah and Job, David now expresses his hope in the Lord in terms of bodily resurrection. Look at verse 9. My flesh also shall rest. Another way to say, I know that someday I'm going to die and they're going to bury me. I know that I'm going to rest from the days of my earthly sojourn. But he says, I have this confidence, my flesh also shall rest in expectation, in hope, in anticipation. The 16th Psalm divides uniquely into two parts, one through seven dealing with the saint's confidence while living on earth. And beginning in verse 8 through 11, the Psalm deals with saint's confidence after physical death. We are to have confidence in the days of earthly sojourn, and we are to have confidence as believers against the day of death. Now it becomes clear upon study that David's expression of confidence here has more to do with the promised son of David than it actually has to do with David personally or with God's people generally. There are, in these words, something reflective of David's personal confidence and hope. But also in David's word, there is something here for saints generally as to our confidence and hope. But because of the unique placement of this psalm within a section of psalms that are particularly recognized as packaged together for the sake of their messianic thread lines, you and I are to understand that these words have more to do with the son of David as promised than King David himself. So this morning, in about 30 minutes, uh, if the Lord uh, grants us uh, a completion of what is in this preacher's mind, you and I are going to hear three sermons. Uh, from 16, 8 through 11. Two of them that we will hear in this hour are among the best ever preached. Uh, you're first going to hear me preach my sermon on the text, and uh, we'll call that, for the sake of being number one sermon, pastor's sermon. Number one is to first, not as to priority or emphasis. And then we're going to hear the Apostle Peter's sermon on this text, and then we're going to hear the Apostle Paul's sermon on this text text. So when you're asked after this day is done, you're asked uh, in, the, in the normal chatter concerning the aspect of the world in which you live, uh, uh, what you heard on Easter Sunday, you can say, we heard our pastor, we heard Peter, we heard Paul. Pastor Peter and Paul, that's the best I can bring to you this morning concerning the resurrection. Well, here's my sermon, pastor sermon. King David and countless saints before have postured themselves uh, before God day by day. David says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. The first key word is the word posture. 
To set the Lord always before you day after day means to center the mind and to fix the soul upon your relationship with God. To posture yourself for another day. Here David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, did he he do that perfectly? No. Did he have gaps and periods of times where he didn't do that at all? Yes, sadly, yes. But David's general posture in all of life was to set the Lord always before him day by day, to put his relationship with God on the front burner, as we might say in this day. David not only placed the thought of Yahweh and the truth of Yahweh ever before his mind and soul, but he acknowledged that the Lord was personally near to him in that day. He is at my right hand. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. We could say it this way. He is here. He is here. I don't have any doubt whatsoever this morning that the Lord heard the mass of men and women sing from this platform this morning. I don't have any doubt about that at all. Do you? Why, no, we recognize that the Lord is here. He's among us. The Lord is here. And because he's here, you and I owe it is to do the work, to get our heads into the very area where we are currently. Not daydreaming about what else we might do on this sunny Sunday, but in fact, here, where we are, present, current, here, awake, aware of God being among us. David said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. The word moved has the idea of shaken. It is likened to a tottering fence that is about to fall. The Hebrew word uh, also describes a sense of being removed or carried off by another. It also is used to describe decay, falling down, and of course the general idea of shaken up. As one that lived through the 1960s in America, I cannot hear the phrase, I shall not be moved, without thinking about the civil rights chant that was popularized to convey stubborn resistance to societal norms in the 1960s. But of course, uh, that chant of the 1960s had uh, little or nothing to do with confidence in God, as it surely has to do with confidence in God as it sets here in Psalm 16. I shall not be moved uh, is a statement in the 1960s of braggadocious resolve uh, coming from the, uh, from the, the power and, and ability of humanity uh, as opposed to uh, a confidence that is uh, blessed because of its realization of relationship with God. And David has God in mind when he says, I shall not be moved. Second key word is praise, 9a. Relationship with God in truth and trust yields an inward gladness and a sense of glory, even in the face of troubled circumstances. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Mature saints know that praising God in trouble ends the trouble in the sense of the soul. Doesn't necessarily change the circumstances, 
the old way we used to say that is we we used to popularistically say prayer changes things, and actually what prayer changes most often is me. What prayer changes is you. That uh, when you pray about your circumstances, when you pray about the realities and the rigors of life, uh, what happens is uh, God doesn't always just jump right to it and, and change those circumstances. Sometimes it's his will that those circumstances uh, prevail for a period of time. But what God does do, if you will pray, is that he will change your perspective. And as a result of that, you will find joy and gladness even in the midst of your difficult circumstances. And uh, that's a huge thing to get a hold of as a child of God. David's prospect, third key word is prospect. His prospect was a physical expectation beyond the grave. My flesh also shall rest in hope or expectation. That's his prospect. He would rest in physical death with great expectation. The fourth key word is prevention. For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, generally understood in the Old Testament as reference to the grave. It's not here a reference to uh, hellfire, the final uh, resting place of those that are rejecting of God's provision in Jesus Christ, but here the grave, Sheol, uh, comparable to the, uh, the Hebrew, or I should say the Greek word, Hades, uh, as it relates to uh, uh, the grave. David expected not to be in the grave uh, forever. He expected to be in the grave. He did not expect to be in the grave forever. He says to Yahweh, you will not leave or forsake my soul in the grave. The Hebrew word, uh, refers to the grave of a person after their physical death. And then David says something, then David says something that is clearly not about himself. He says, Neither will thou suffer thine holy one, neither will you permit thy holy one to see corruption. Now David to this point has been talking about himself, 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 himself. But now he references a holy one. Can we call David a holy one? Well, not in the big picture of his life and testimony. Can I call you a holy one? Yes. Can I call David a holy one? Well, not in regards to his life and testimony as he lived it out. And yet he certainly proved to be God's child. But, but can I call you a holy one? Certainly can. Why? Because you're not depending upon your performance before God. You're depending upon Jesus Christ, right? And on that basis, you and I are saints in the Lord, holy ones of God. But this is talking about the holy one. That's not David. And that's not you. And that's not me. And so... It's not too hard to get our minds around the fact that it's in some way talking about God. But in what sense is it talking about God? He says that Yahweh will not permit or arrange for his Holy One to see decay or to experience corruption. And you would have to ask at this point in study, what is that all about? Now, of course, you and I will soon know and be assured of the reference here in just a couple of moments. But for now, let's talk about the path, verse 11. That will show me the path of life. 
This is the path or the highway of the abundant life in the very presence, next key word, number six, presence of God. Show me the path of life in the presence, the fullness of joy. In verse 8, David expressed confidence that God was present with him in the days of his earthly life, but here David is confident of being present with God. God present with David, verse 8, David present with God. Verse 10, the last key word is the word pleasure in that place before the face of God, before the presence of God, there are pleasures forevermore. These are pleasures that speak of delights to be enjoyed with God and that forever. There's a very real sense in which Psalm 16, 8 to 11 is a section of scripture where David speaks about his own bodily resurrection. And these words have been rightfully applied uh, and connected to, applied to saints over many uh, generations. But we have unlocked the full and precious secret of the text, haven't we? Not yet. Do we have something of which we can chew, spiritually speaking? Oh, yeah. Have we already covered a lot? Yep. Is my sermon done? Yep. But we have two more sermons to hear this morning. I just walked you through exegetically the text, particularly having David in mind. But we have yet to unlock the full and precious secret of which this text speaks. We have not yet unlocked that precious secret. And so now we turn to the sermon of Peter, as preached immediately following the arrival of the Holy Spirit upon the Lord's church, when 3,000 people placed their faith in the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 2 and verse 29, please. Acts Chapter 2, beginning at verse 29. You've heard my sermon. Now I want you to hear Peter's sermon. Beginning to read at 29, I'll read through 36. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah. He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, David, seeking this before, spake of the resurrection of Messiah, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Sheol, the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. Who are we talking about? This Jesus, 
hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. That would be the apostolic we in witness. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's Peter's sermon. Let me just walk through it quickly with you. Once again, verse 29, Peter spoke of David, who was long dead and buried, and who without doubt was in a physical condition in that particular moment of extreme consummation or decay. If there was anything left physically of David in his tomb, it would have probably been nothing but some bones. All of the flesh and organs would have been long, long gone by the time that Peter is preaching his sermon relative to Psalm 16. David died 900 years prior to these events. That's a long time to be in the tomb. There's not much left for CSI to find in that place concerning David. Verse 30, Peter said that David, as a prophet of God, possessed the very promise of God of a direct descendant who would ascend to David's throne. Verse 31a, David has a prophetic revelation. 31a, he, David, seeing this before. You ought to mark that phrase in your Bible. David saw something ahead of time. He saw something of the future, way beyond the contemporary period in which he lived. He saw something of prophetic revelation concerning he who was the promise that was the fulfillment of his own loins concerning the throne upon which he sat. That prophetic revelation of God before, verse 31a, caused David to speak of, ready, the resurrection of Christ. He did what? He talked about the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16 is about what? Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Christ. Okay, we got it. David said, I know that in my flesh, I'm going to rest in hope. He's talking about himself. But then he says, I know that God's not going to leave my flesh in Sheol, in the grave. And he's still, to some degree, talking about himself. But then David said in Psalm 16, uh, uh, he, God is, going to, uh, is not going to allow his Holy One to see corruption. 
And here in this text, when Peter's preaching, the first thing he tells the people that gathered on that, on that particular uh, uh, day uh, to hear, uh, the first thing Peter says to them is, is that David is dead, David is buried, and of course David is highly corrupted, physically speaking corrupted. And so that idea of the Holy One that is not going to suffer corruption cannot be David. So who is it about? Well, according to Peter, David had a prophetic revelation of uh, the Messiah, of the Christ, of he who was to come out of his own family lineage. And he spoke, he was caused to speak of the resurrection of Christ. 31 says that, point blank. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. So you have Peter telling you, in that case, directly what it was that uh, David was writing about in Psalm 16. In fact, then he quotes Psalm 16, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. The two things together, not left in the grave, number one, true of Christ, true of all Christians. Not left in the grave. But the second part, not to see corruption, has nothing to do with my promise and your promise. It has only to do with the promise of God the Father concerning God the Son who had become flesh. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Son of David. So who was and is the primary subject of the truth? that the soul would not be forsaken in the grave or tomb, and whose flesh would endure without decay or corruption? The answer is, the primary person of reference in Psalm 16 is Jesus Christ. Peter said David's psalm was primarily about Jesus Christ. That's an important thing to get a hold of. In verses 32 and 33 of Peter's sermon, he explained, that the unusual day of Pentecost when he was preaching uh, is, uh, is to be connected to uh, the messianic sense of fulfillment in Christ. And that's why he quotes another messianic psalm in verses 34 and 35. He quotes Psalm 110, a psalm that is clearly messianic, clearly looking forward to the person of Jesus Christ and actually depicts the reality of Christ now and even in the future concerning his second coming. Again, 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but we might add Jesus Christ is. But he, David, saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. That refers to the Lord's posture in heaven this very moment in time. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God. Amen? Until, verse 35, until that which is promised to be next is next. And what is that? Until, says God, I make thy foes thy footstool. Until Christ comes again in power and great glory. So Peter's sermon ends then with a drawn conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Therefore, 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, let there be no doubt that God hath made that same Jesus, 
whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now again, those titles are so familiar in our use in this New Testament era that we are quite distanced from the significance of those titles as Jewish apostle Peter used them on the day of Pentecost, the first day of preaching in the context of church. Lord. Old Testament would be rendered capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Know this assuredly. Jesus of Nazareth is God Almighty. Yahweh. Lord. He is Lord! And Mashiach. Messiah. Christ. Let there be no doubt that Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's the end of Peter's sermon. When Peter preached Psalm 16 on the day of Pentecost, the conclusion of his preaching was that the crowd would correctly identify Jesus as God of very gods and Christ, the man of God's own choosing, Jesus Christ. So now you've heard my sermon, and now you've heard Peter's sermon, so let's hear Paul. Acts 13, Acts 13, and uh, we'll read from 32 to 38. Here's Paul's sermon. And we declare unto you glad tidings, or we declare unto you the gospel, how that by promise which was made unto the fathers, Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Now, he raised up Jesus again. That's not a reference to the resurrection out of the tomb. Again, Jesus was raised out of the tomb. And then again, Jesus was raised off the earth into heaven. This is talking about ascension. How do I know? Well, we keep reading. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. In this case, Paul's sermon says that the idea of Psalm 2, 7 the Messianic Psalm 2-7 finds its fulfillment in the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. The second raising of Christ. And as concerning, verse 34, that he raised him up from the dead. Now we're back to the resurrection. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. David's promise of a forever son on the throne is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And anybody that hears this and embraces this shares in the sure mercies that were directed towards King David. 35. Wherefore, he saith also. Who saith? David saith in another psalm. What psalm? Psalm 16. Thou shalt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. 
For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. We would say, he died. And was laid onto his fathers. We would say, buried. And saw corruption. His body decayed. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Paul speaks of the resurrection of Christ and connects it to the glorious resurrection unto life first backward to David, and then forward to you and me. Paul quotes Psalm 16, and at verse 36, Paul clarifies that Psalm 16 is primarily about the son of David, not David himself personally. The one who saw no decay after death will uh, 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 continue, as it were, uh, to ever live in perpetuity, and that one is none other than Messiah, is the Lord Jesus. This understanding of the scripture, old and new, yields us opportunity to preach unto you, as Paul preached unto these people in Acts 13, the, quote, forgiveness of sins. So, What is the point of Resurrection Sunday? Well, if you take the sermon that I preached, and you add to it the sermon that Peter preached, and then you add to that the sermon that Paul preached, you would have to say this, that Resurrection Sunday is all about the correct identity of Jesus as Lord and Christ. And Resurrection Sunday... I'll say it just to be popular. Easter Sunday is about your sins forgiven. That's when I approach a day like today. I approach it with great consternation because I'm interested in the truth, not trinkets. This day is not about rabbits, it's not about eggs. It's not about springtime flowers. It's not about Easter lilies. It's about the Lord. It's about Christ. And it is about my and your forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ. That is what Easter is. Jesus is risen. (laughs) Just look in final conclusion at verse 39. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Jesus can do for you and me and for others what no person can do for themselves. He 
can forgive our sins. I'm glad to give you the testimony in my case to say he has. Do you share that testimony? Say amen. If you don't share that testimony, you can. By placing your faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. But every person that does so, every person that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has David's ancient hope that in his own flesh, when resting in the grave, he will continue to possess hope in the resurrected Lord. Father, thank you this morning for the clarity of the text and the surety of the believer who has faith in the things declared of old and of new. Thank you this morning for the opportunity to exegete Psalm 16, 8 to 11. Thank you for the a special privilege of seeing what Peter had to say about that and what Paul had to say about that and to arm ourselves for the week ahead with the truth of the Lord and the truth of Christ and the truth of the forgiveness of sins because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, we praise you, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.